Welcome to the Harvard Center for International Development's Road to GEM 23 Climate and Development Podcast. My name is Charles Hua, and I'm a senior at Harvard College and a CID student ambassador. CID's Road to GEM 23 series proceeds and helps launch CID's Global Empowerment Meeting, or GEM, Growing in a Green World, on May 10th and 11th. At CID, we work across a global network of researchers and practitioners to build, convene, and deploy talent to address the world's most pressing challenges. On our road to GEM 23, we strive to elevate and learn from voices from the countries on the front lines of the climate crisis, and will feature important learnings from the leaders who will be active participants at GEM 23. This week, we are joined by Atharv Agrawal, Gina Yazdanpana, and Nadine Al-Halabi. Atharv is a Pearson scholar at the University of Toronto, majoring in economics and peace, conflict, and justice, as well as a future climate leader at the Aspen Institute. Gina holds an honors Bachelor of Applied Science from the University of Toronto in Industrial Engineering and Artificial Intelligence and currently works with Isla Urbana, building a carbon calculator to capture saved emissions from rainwater harvesting systems. And Nadine holds a master's in Near and Middle Eastern Civilizations from the University of Toronto and currently works with the Alberta Council for Global Cooperation, exploring cultural heritage promotion and its intersection with global citizenship education. Thanks for joining us today. So why don't you all each just introduce yourself real quick in a bit more detail and explain what led you to this work? Why is the intersection of international development and climate sustainability important to you? I'm happy to kick things off and then I'll pass the can over to Gina and Nadine. I grew up in in India uh, and especially living in a city like Mumbai. I think an interest in development was very natural pull just because of the sheer disparity in every sense of the word that I grew up around. Luckily, found myself very solidly in the center of all of these things, uh, which is why I was interested in studying development to see how I can be a conduit between these two seemingly disparate worlds and be a bridge uh, of sorts. And that's what brought me to U of T. And I was very interested in exploring the world of development and climate just ended up being this universal challenge that was far more widespread than any other problem that I could work in and just happened to start working in environmental governance. And then we all were part of this research program at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy here at U of T called the REACH Alliance, which does research on development interventions around the world that are particularly working with hard to reach populations. And Gina and Nadine can speak more to this, but our common interest between the three of us was trying to explore how technology can be used as a means to augment traditional knowledge and sustain traditional ways of life rather than impede on traditional ways of life, particularly in the context of climate change, where not only are we dealing with new ways of living life, but also a very explicit erasure of culture and heritage and all ways of life and, and people generally speaking, particularly when it came to populations that were hard to reach, not only geographically, but socially, economically, politically, and in every other sense of the word. And that's what led us to the work that that we ended up doing for the past few years now. But I'll pass it on to Jin and Zine to see if they have anything to add there. Okay, so I I guess I'll go next time. Uh, I discovered sort of a 
that intersection um, of international development and climate actually through the people first that that we were investigating. So as a part of the REACH Alliance, we're tasked with uh, finding an organization that's uh, implementing some sort of development project. Um, and, and the population that it targets, as Atav mentioned, has to sort of exist, has to um, be defined as marginalized in some way or hardest to reach. Uh, and given my background in uh, Middle Eastern studies um, and, and North African, so the, the MENA region, uh, I was very interested in, um, in Amazigh. And, uh, and that's kind of when I started looking into um, organizations that work with these groups and learned of the uh, very serious challenges they're facing because of climate change. And that's how I became sort of introduced to that, uh, that intersection of, of climate technology uh, for development. Yeah, um, and so then when it comes to me, so I kind of have become introduced to this world of global development or international development um, through the lens of engineering and STEM. So I started my education in engineering and, and I've always been passionate about being able to create technologies and, and tools and create an impact in society through that channel. But something that was always really striking to me through my education was that, you know, something like 90% uh, or like the majority of technology innovations are focused on the top 1% of the world. And so we're continuously innovating technology for people who already have a lot of their basic needs met. Meanwhile, there's millions of people in the global South um, that don't. And because of a historical reputation of technology, sometimes not being implemented in the most uh, accurate ways in, in uh, marginalized or, or third world populations, uh, there's been a little bit of hesitation towards kind of, I guess, uh, further expanding that field. But that's something that I've always been really passionate about, about how can I, you know, create an impact in the technology space in a way that is supportive and uplifting of uh, people who are missing some of their most basic needs. So that's kind of what led me to the REACH Alliance as well. And, and I think something that's really interesting about the work that we were all able to do together is that what led us there was something completely different. You know, I am motivated first by the technology piece, whereas someone like Nadine is first motivated by the people and, and some of Atharv's major experiences are more related around climate and climate resiliency. But something that's so beautiful and special about the organization that we were able to do our research on was that, um, you know, adversity and and uh, marginalization is very uh, intersectional. And so all of those things are pieces that come together and that all three of us can use our individual expertise to kind of support. Thanks so much. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Now, all of you were working on a report that looked at the mountainous region in Southwest Morocco. It's a region that has um, limited freshwater resources and has been hit already by climate change impacts. Can you talk me, can you, can you walk through your research? What were some of your key driving questions behind the work? And, and what were some of the findings that, that, that you gathered that were particularly interesting? What we started off knowing about DSH was that they, or Darcy Ahmad, is that they are an intervention focusing on the Amazigh population and their main piece of work or main piece of technology is these fog harvesting nets. 
Um, but what was initially so fascinating about their intervention is that fog harvesting is a technology that's been implemented in a lot of different places around the world, specifically, you know, places that have a high concentration of fog. But not all of them have been proven to be as successful as Darcy Ahmad. Darcy Ahmad is currently the world's largest and, and most successful fog harvesting collection um, and technology uh, implementation. And they've been running for over 10 years. And so kind of in line with the themes uh, from the REACH Alliance, the first and foremost aspect of our research is trying to extract insights about what makes them so successful and what makes them stand out and make them different from other organizations or interventions, not just that are similar to them focusing on fog harvesting technology, but other interventions that are also related to them in other aspects. So uh, interventions that are looking at geographically marginalized populations or interventions that have aspects that focus on uplifting gender-based inequality. So we try to get a holistic, well-rounded understanding of what are the factors that are contributing to their success. I might pass it on to Athar Nadine for a more specific view on some of our research questions, though. For sure. In terms of the, our area of research, naturally, when working uh, in the context of climate change, we we are looking for we're we're working on sustainability, but often sustainability just means something that is more. It's you're just working towards greener solutions or solutions that are mitigating climate change. But in in their context, the notion of sustainability was not just working with conditions that have changed from what they were in the past, but conditions that were rapidly changing. So in order to understand if a solution was sustainable in that it was fighting climate change, we also had we also wanted to investigate what sustained success looked like. Sustainability had to incorporate the notion of sustained success because the conditions that they were dealing with were rapidly changing. So what we wanted to investigate was whether there can be any general insights that can be developed that, as Sheena mentioned, organizations, public sector, private sector, or nonprofit, when they're implementing projects like this on the ground, they can keep in mind to be able to achieve that same sustained success that Darcy Mount was able to achieve. I think what was really driving us throughout the project was to understand um, what well, we know that you know technology is going to start playing a, a major role in our lives. It already is, and it's been slower to reach marginalized populations, but it's going to get there. And I think what we were really interested in is how can technology coexist with traditional ways of life, as it's already mentioned earlier, to augment traditional practices. Uh, and ways of living, and and preserve culture too. So not uh, to not impede it, impede on it, but to coexist and and benefit the societies that it would be targeting. Um, so I think uh, that was really something at the heart of our work um, throughout it all, and and still is. The other thing that I would just add here is that well, we did understand that the technology in and of in and of itself was novel in that even though there were projects like this around the world, there weren't as many, it wasn't something that was a household phenomena uh, around the world. 
we we wanted to investigate whether it was the technology in and of itself that contributed to the success of the project or if there were other features like the governance structures at play, the way they engaged in relationships with the villagers, the the, the types of fundraiser, the, the, the types of donors and funders that they chose, those sorts of aspects that would lead to the sustained success, almost to create a playbook of sorts, for the lack of a better phrase, for interventions like this in the future. So you bring up really interesting points around technology transfer and this idea of the role of technology in international development. I'd, I'd be curious to hear you speak a little bit more on that. What do you view as the purpose of technology in these development intervention efforts? Do the current models around technology transfer and deploying proven technologies, do they work? Uh, and what are some of the barriers that maybe you encountered in your research or that you view as important to tackle to make sure that technology actually reaches the communities that need it the most, but also in a way that best serves their priorities and interests? Yeah, definitely. I can start speaking on that. So I think looking at what exists in like the academic space right now, like literature wise, we've within the engineering space, we've kind of moved away from traditional ideas of humanitarian engineering and are looking more at what it means to create appropriate technologies. And when we're investigating what it means to be an appropriate technology, we're looking at more than just the physical functionality of the design and serving the purpose that it's made to to serve. So in this example, for example, fog harvesting technology, is the, the one that we're investigating is a German-made manufactured type of technology that is called the cloud fisher. And, and I could explain to you the specifications of why it works and why it's able to trap fog, but that's less important when it comes to serving these kind of populations because it's just one piece of the puzzle. But of the lot of, a lot of the time when we look at these problems as technology problems, we fail to focus on how important and how big of a piece of the puzzle those other elements are. And I think at the heart of that problem is truly viewing the problem from a multidisciplinary point of view. And I think that that's really the unique perspective that the three of us were able to bring in our analysis, that we were kind of weighing those pieces evenly rather than looking at it as a technology first and those other pieces as supporting elements. So I think when we dive deeper into what those what those elements are, one is an implementation and expansion strategy. So I think a lot of the time in these kind of technology interventions, or historically speaking, they've been deployed, but there hasn't been a um, people-oriented effort in terms of how to culturally and systematically ensure success when we approach implementation. And then a second major point, I think, is something that our team has kind of been referring to as humanizing technology. And I think at the heart of that is developing human-centered technologies. So technologies that are fitting the needs, the accessibilities, the experiences, the, the understanding of reality, the culture of the people that it's meant to serve. So a small example from our research here is that there was supporting ICT technology that was implemented to support the fog harvesting technology. And this ICT technology was called a fog phone. And in these communities, the Amazigh women traditionally are the guardians of the water or of the fog. 
And in this instance, what was designed was a basic mobile device that allowed these women to still hold the metaphorical power over the fog by being able to still have ownership over some of the management and the preservation of these water systems by being able to communicate updates on the status and the and the working state of the technology so that's an example of how these kind of interventions can be designed in a way that is considerate of the reality of the people that it's made to serve rather than just being functional if i might add to that a lot of the a lot of the literature on technology transfers is focused on case studies which involve top-down technology transfers. You have an external where you have an external government or an organization coming to a foreign environment with this technology from from the West usually, and then just implement this cookie cutter technology in that region and then just leave. And that was seen with a bunch of other fog harvesting projects around the world as well. What was different about Darcy Madan, what we didn't see much of in the literature, was talking about how these technology transfers can actually happen from the bottom up, as was the case with Darcy Hamad, where the founder got introduced to this technology while studying in Canada, and then got inspired, went back home, and then started this from the ground up. So it's entirely run by the people themselves who are directly benefiting from the project, which also means that the, the technology is tuned to their specific needs and the requirements and any cultural any cultural aspects that they need to be mindful of, as Gina mentioned, but that is happening because it is happening from the ground up rather than top down, which is which was definitely surprisingly a disconnect that we saw both in the literature and in praxis and something that can definitely be changed moving forward for more successful technology transfers. So I, I'm curious, part of your research also raised this question around what sustainability means in, in today's environment. That is a combination of a lot of different crises. Certainly there's the climate crisis, there are ecological crises, economic crises, there's just a lot of volatility, and I'm curious how you think about what it means to have sustainable or sustainability woven into international development efforts, particularly given this incredible volatility that we're experiencing and seeing in international development efforts today. And how does that, how should that inform our approach to sustainability moving forward? I think that was really a question that we, we really struggled to um, at first define what we meant by sustainability, um, you know, were we interested in understanding, you know, when a project becomes non-sustainable anymore and it just doesn't exist, that the organization sort of falls apart and you no longer have that intervention? Or, you know, were we talking about a point of sustainability where community uh, is has complete ownership and can manage uh, and maintain the project without sort of any external intervention? And I think towards the end that's that's sort of the the definition that we uh, you know tentatively agreed upon but what we started discovering is that sustainability in this context as we were told by one of the leaders of Darcy Ahmad is that it's very difficult to measure sustainability in unstable conditions and one major factor contributing to those unstable conditions is 
climate, of course, in a region that was already heavily, heavily affected by water shortages. Uh, it's only been made worse with the recent climate change trends. And so although we might say right now that Darcy Ahmad is a organization that is the largest water fog collection project in the world, serves numerous villages in this region, has seen so many uh, benefits such as improved, increased attendance of, in school from girls. They've implemented female literacy trainings, sanitation projects, all these uh, amazing, amazing benefits that have come about from this project that are not even directly related to fog water harvesting. But while we can say that this is all at this point in time, perhaps sustainable or looks sustainable, it's really difficult to predict that in in an environment such as South West Morocco that's, that's been increasingly affected by climate change. Yeah, and I guess to kind of um, piggyback on some of those points, at the beginning of our research, we proposed a framework for what we believed were the steps involved with achieving sustainability when it comes to development interventions. And it was kind of focused on three major elements. One was these linear time chunks of where you go from the beginning of the, the creation of the intervention and how you get it to be diffused through the communities. And the second piece was this increasing level of trust that is required to grow from that first linear time point until the end. And the third major piece being that once you reach this final time bound, like linear stage, there needs to be iterative refinement into maintaining and expanding this state of the intervention that you consider to be sustainable, whether that is culturally, technology wise, all of those elements combined together, it requires iterative refinement. And I think taking into consideration some of those points that Nadine raised from our research, the, the major finding from speaking to people from Darcy and Maud was that considering the unstable conditions and considering the rapidly increasing rate of the impacts of the climate crisis, now more than ever, these kind of development interventions need to consider this third piece to that iterative refinement. So it's not just maintenance, it's not just expansion, but it's adaptability. So it's the capacity to be able to adapt to the changing conditions that you're faced with and be able to pivot your intervention to be able to fit and mold those changing conditions. And that is more kind of on a functional operational side, but on a much more human side at the, at the depth of that is perseverance. So being able to reach those increasing levels of trust and being able to operationalize that trust is key to being able to have an intervention where everybody is willing to commit to that perseverance and is willing to go through that adaptability cycle. And this also means then that the way that you can build this adaptability to the system is by having institutions that allow people to take charge in ever-changing situations. And when it is local people who are direct benefactors of these programs that have skin in the game and then also have a say in what needs to be changed about about the intervention to ensure that it is adaptable and sustained, that is when things happen quickly. And that's why Darcy Ahmad has been successful because those running the organization were also directly benefiting from the work that they were doing, which means that there was 
there was an onus, but also an incentive to participate and to be quick on their feet. And this, this also meant that this, this has to be continuous rather than one-off, this engagement with the benefactors. And it had to involve people from all across the spectrum, be that, be that children in schools where, where they're being taught how to live with this new abundance of water. Or, or it was the women who were now being given these new forms of technologies besides the fog harvesting technology to retain their, their social status in society amidst this new technology. Or it was the men who were being trained to both work this technology, but also be able to make changes to it as and when was needed. All of this is only possible because they created a structure which allowed them to have that flexibility and want to continue making changes to it. And that's something that can be taken into account when developing new development interventions. I think multidisciplinary work is so incredibly valuable as an anthropologist. I had always approached these um, topics and research issues from a people perspective. And that was always sort of my focus is that we need to understand the people. Um, but having the opportunity to work on a team with someone like Gina, who's incredibly knowledgeable about the technological aspects of such projects, and someone like Atharv, who really, really passionate about uh, climate change and climate technology, it really just, it first allows you to recognize that there is actually intersecting solutions. Solutions should be intersecting in that they, they need to incorporate all these different perspectives in order to be successful. I think that's sort of Darcy Ahmad too, uh, sort of embodies that multidisciplinary approach as well. Great, thank you. And I just want to close out with a question about the value of having sort of diverse perspectives that, that you all certainly bring, but also the different lenses that, that you approach this work. And I'm curious what you view as the value of multidisciplinary collaboration in the international development space. How can we foster more of it? Why is this important in your views? And what were some of the lessons that you learned from your research experience bringing in different stakeholders and working across disciplines? I think often when we approach any, any matter with a single perspective, there are blind spots naturally. When approaching it from just a tech perspective, as a lot of other solutions before this had, you end up just optimizing for the technology to have maximum output without taking into account the people that are going to both be running it, but also be benefiting from it. If you look at it just from a development perspective, from from a policy standpoint, then uh, you're looking for something that might give you the right stats or give like definite results, but might not have the potential for iteration. And on the other hand, if you look at it from just an anthropologist's perspective, you might not even think about using technologies of this sort. So when we were studying all of these things, we were able to account for those blind spots and also ask those kinds of questions. When we were doing our interviews, for example, we, we weren't just talking to academics, but we were also talking to people on the ground who were fixing their nets. Uh, we were talking to people who deal with the villagers themselves. We were talking to the co-founder who is one of the co-founders who is an anthropologist herself. So she's she's been in both parts of the world 
And in, in doing so, you realize how much there is to learn from other disciplines, but also how much how much more can be achieved when everybody comes together. And often there are just echo chambers that we found ourselves in before we work together, where there are no assumptions. Everything has to be explained. And when you do that, you often realize that a lot of assumptions were quite presumptuous, but you, you just get desensitized to that and, and, and constantly being made not to question or justify yourself, but to think about why you believe what you believe and why you, you think the way you think can be quite a helpful exercise when doing anything uh, when doing when undertaking an academic exercise this, of this sort, but also if you're actually on the ground implementing a project like this. I think that like looking at the importance of multidisciplinary work when it specifically comes to the development space and development industries, it's important to think about how in the global north, we might not intentionally think about multidisciplinary work as much because so much time and effort and money is already invested across the board to address the issues that we deal with. But when we're looking at populations who are the hardest to reach, and if we're trying to amplify their voices, then we need to be amplifying like all parts of their voices, all parts of the of the pie. And so a population like the Amazigh is not only a population that is suffering water scarcity. They're not only a population that is geographically isolated. They're not only a, a population that is, you know, experiencing cultural and, and, and social issues that are different from the ones that we experience. They're all of those things at once. And so if the effort is being placed to support those populations, then we have to support them from all of the different angles that we have the resources to. And I think bringing that big idea down to a student level, which is what the three of us can speak on, is the fact that until you're really put in the position where you have to genuinely collaborate with someone that comes from a different background than yours, I think you underestimate how much of a mental exercise it really is. When you're propositioned with the idea to collaborate with someone in a multidisciplinary setting, you might initially think that, oh, well, I'm an open-minded person. Oh, I can think critically. I'm sure that I could be open-minded to hear somebody else's opinions and, and find something that bridges our opinions together. But then when you're really put in that space like the three of us were for the past three years, you really learn that underratedly, a lot of the ways that you think and the ways that you process information are actually conditioned to the environments that you are accustomed to. And being able to put yourself outside of that box, if your goal is to be able to make an impact, it's ultimately going to allow you to be you know, a better thinker and a better innovator, because not only are you taking another person's thoughts and ideas and perspectives into account, but you're learning how to blend those things into your own thought processes as well. I've learned so much from these two over the past two years, and, and I'm essentially a completely different person. <laughs> and if I might add to that, uh, this was just in terms of undertaking and doing the, the research itself. But one thing that we're now grappling with is communicating this research. Knowledge management and translation also is so much better if you have a multidisciplinary perspective because you we've realized how differently we have to talk about our work when we're talking to academics or we're talking to policy folks or we're talking to scientists 
but it's still objectively the same research. So to have a team that can speak to those different perspectives means that we're just able to cater to a larger audience while still being specific and touching the right nerves. And, you know, as somebody who works in, as, as people who work in, in the climate space, climate communication is probably an important field that is the most underrated in the entire space. So having that multidisciplinary aspect in knowledge management and translation is something that we're discovering the benefits of right now. Thanks again to Atharv, Gina, and Nadine for taking the time to talk with us today. You can learn more about the Center for International Developments, research, upcoming events, and how to join the GEM23 conference virtually at cid.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back soon. Thank you.